Hi everyone, welcome to Casper Podcast. My name is Mila Maria and I'm founder and EIC of Casper Magazine. Join me as I host and chat to some awesome humans about health, wellness, work, life and anything else in between. But before I get into this episode, make sure you check out our IGTV version and follow or subscribe at Casper Magazine for your weekly dose of inspiration. Okay, let's get into it. Enjoy the show everyone. Welcome to Casper Podcast. This week in the studio, we have holistic nutritionist Ellie McLean, and she chats with me about all things nutrition. We take a look at metabolic efficiency. We also look at foods to include in your daily diet, as well as how stress can affect your digestion. It's packed full of awesome info. Ellie shares great insights with me, and I can't wait for you guys to have a listen. So tune in, share your thoughts, and enjoy the show, everyone. Bye. Hi, Ellie. Welcome to Casper Podcast. It's so awesome to have you as a guest on the show today. I'm super excited to talk to you about all things nutrition. And um, and I love what you're about. I love what you do. I love your approach to nutrition and well-being um, and the sustainability behind it. I think it's amazing. Um, but today we're going to talk um, about nutrition and running, which is, you know, running is one of my favorite things to do and um, getting some insights on how I can run better or fuel my body to run better it would be awesome but firstly um you're a holistic nutritionist can you um explain what a holistic uh, nutritionist is in comparison to just a nutritionist I definitely can and firstly thank you very much for having me on the show it's awesome to be talking with you and um I love that like podcasting and the world wide web can you know connect us with people that we otherwise mightn't have have crossed paths with especially given we've been in lockdown for much of the last 10 or so months um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um I guess do you know what the term nutritionist is one that can be applied in many situations so um in Australia, for example, there's not a big hard and fast rule as to what education is required for somebody to be able to label themselves a nutritionist, which is a little bit different to something like dietetics, whereby to be a dietitian, you have to have done a degree with a specific set of universities and be registered with the Dietetics Association of Australia. Um, that's not to make nutritionists sound bad, but just to highlight that firstly, the term nutritionist is one that someone could apply to themselves if they've done a six-month course or whether they've done a three-year university degree followed by X number of courses. Um, and the term holistic nutritionist is one that I gave to myself, really. So I've got an undergraduate degree in exercise science and nutrition. I've done further study in education, in health coaching, um, and I look at the individual, individual holistically. So it's, of course, food is my focus. And so um, the way that I treat is always thinking of is number one, okay, how can I help this person through the food that they choose to put on their plate? Um, but I also acknowledge that individuals I see, whether they've got um, goals around um, running faster, recovering better, losing body fat, balancing hormones, um, improving their digestion. Like that can't all just happen with the food that goes on our plate. We've got to think about um, the way that we eat the food, um, when we eat the food, the thought processes around the food in our life um, and the other lifestyle factors like yep. And yeah, like stress and work yeah, and kids stress and, and all those stuff. things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So all I guess those the, other, yeah, you know, all those other, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And especially now, we're so all so busy. You know, everyone's everyone I speak to, you know, whether they're colleagues, friends, family, everyone's. I feel like everyone's running a million miles an hour. They're juggling all these different roles and then families and all that sort of stuff. So it does impact the way you eat. And and the way you think about food, it's usually, if I take myself as an example, it's like you go, you know, you, you might not have, have had anything to eat till, you know, after lunch and you're like, oh, I'm super hungry now. What, what can I guzzle? <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's yeah. all that too. Exactly. Um, I use the term rushing women's syndrome. Uh, actually, there's a um, naturopath nutritionist, Dr. Libby Weaver, who wrote a book called Rushing Women's Syndrome. Uh, really all about the fact that, and of course, like it would apply to men as well, but quite literally a whole day can put us into a state of fight or flight, you know, from 
getting up in the morning to getting the kids ready to school or getting your dog out for a walk to getting yourself off to work and then dealing with traffic and then dealing with emails and meetings and difficult conversations and like you know we just live in a day and age where we can quite realistically be in a um, state of fight or flight or sympathetic dominant state which can have a flow-on effect to our hormones and that does have a flow-on effect to what we want to eat. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What's um, sympathetic dominant state? Um, so, You've got me curious. I've not heard that before. <laughs> I know. I thought it was a bit ris- risky throwing out that term. No, it's um, good. We all need to know what that is. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Um, so sim- the sympathetic nervous system is part of the autonomic nervous system and think of the autonomic nervous system as that which governs uh, everything that we don't want to have to think about, right? So breathing, digestion, that sort of stuff. Um, and within the autonomic nervous system, we've got the parasympathetic nervous system and then we've got the sympathetic nervous system. And the sympathetic nervous system is what will be dominant when we're in a state of stress or when we've got a perceived stress there on our shoulder or in our mind or whatever the stressor might be, the sympathetic nervous system will kick into gear. So it'll mobilise sugars um, to give a ready and easy to access fuel source for our muscles to use so that we can fight or flee from that um, perceived stress. Okay. Um, And then we've got the um, parasympathetic nervous system, which I always think of like a parachute, like calming us, bringing us back down. Um, the parasympathetic system, um, nervous system is what you could also think of as the rest and digest state. So when we're out of that sympathetic state and in more of a parasympathetic state, our body can prioritise like perhaps the non-essentials for saving life. So it can prioritise things like hormone production and digestive functions, so um, flow of blood to the digestive organs and release of hydrochloric acid to help us break down food and release of enzymes to help us break down food. So I actually talk about this a lot because you can see that there's a difference between the two states and um, being in this parasympathetic state is definitely the preferred in cases of digestive discomfort and upset. I feel like we're not in that state enough. You know, we are. So we most of us are living in the future. <laughs> you know, yeah. we're thinking five steps ahead, which... It's often what we're encouraged to do, you know, in like a business environment or setting or a goal setting or career um, defining type session where we're being encouraged to think five steps ahead. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have got such issues with anxiety or sympathetic dominance, because we're not living in the here and now. We're thinking about, um, you know, what's happening in three days time or five days time, which don't get me wrong, like we've got to have an idea of what's coming around the corner, but I've got to focus on what's in the, what's here in the present moment. Like, um, as my partner always says to me, don't like, don't think of all the what ifs, um, no. <laughs> not all the what ifs, like what's here, like what is the real information that you have on hand um, that will allow you to, to make a decision based on real information as opposed to hypothetical um, information uh, and yeah we're, we're constantly living outside of the present moment and one of the ways in actually bringing your body into the parasympathetic state is by deep breathing uh, and so wow. you know meditation and stuff is often thought of as you know being woo-woo but it's not like deep breathing literally five deep breaths so slowing down your breath rate uh, is enough to bring the body back into a parasympathetic state um, Practices like yoga, um, the randomised control trials done on yoga and its impact on um, stress and, and cortisol production, so those hormones that get produced when you're in that sympathetic state, it's the shavasana. It's the it's the lying down, not asleep, but not in a fully wake state. It's that that helps with the, the hormone balance. And so we can learn from that. Like we can put these little pockets of shavasana into our day and take some deep breaths. Like oh, don't, I often, don't tell me twice. <laughs> I'm, ha- I'm happy to just lie on the floor in my office and go, believe you alone, I'm, I'm shavasaning. <laughs> yeah, 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 give me some of that. Um, yeah. I love it when some of my clients get into a routine of doing some meditation and especially for, you know, working mothers who've probably put themselves on the back burner for 
however many years I've had kids, for them to say like, oh, I'm loving my meditation now. It's like my five minutes of retreat time. I'm like, great. That's exactly how I want you to think of it. Yeah, so important, so important, you know, and, and it does. It affects, I guess, our, our nervous system and our stress levels and all of that if we don't stop and, and take a breath. It does affect how we digest food and how our metabolism works and all the rest of it, which is one of the other reasons why I'm so excited to talk to you is because you actually talk about metabolic um, efficiency. efficiency. Metabolic efficiency. Uh, yeah, I love this topic because I think you're right for – for many years and the the wellness industry is responsible for perpetuating this but we've talked about either having a fast or a slow metabolism and if it's fast it means you're you're skinny and if it's slow it'll predispose you to 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 putting on weight and not being able to lose weight so first and foremostly like the metabolism is a collective term used for all of the physical and chemical reactions that occur in our body so being able to take the food that we eat and transform it into fuels for the body to use. Metabolism is implicated in not just weight, it's implicated in energy levels, in digestion, in, in cognition. So um, think of metabolism as being really fundamental to our overall health, well-being and longevity. And I think that's the key because, you know, for years, uh, metabolism, you, you talk about metabolism and you think about your food. You know, you don't necessarily think about all its other actions and, and what it does in our body, like yeah. the things that you just mentioned. It's yeah. so important and so vital. It's not just about the food. There's so many other uh, roles of the metabolism within the human body. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And so it's um, we used to use this term slow and fast, or I say we used to. We can still use those terms. I don't. So you, you could say a slow and fast metabolism, but I prefer to get a little more nuanced with it and, and describe it as being an, effect, an efficient metabolism or um, a flexible metabolism. So our body's got different fuel sources that it can tap into. There's two primary fuel sources. So one being fat, one being carbohydrate. An inefficient metabolism would be one that is only able to utilise, take and transform the carbohydrates that we eat and turn that into fuel and an efficient metabolism is one that would effectively be able to tap into both fuel sources so fat so fat being like that which is st stored on our body <laughs> um, and carbohydrates and carbohydrates isn't stored on our body in the same way that fat is so fat can be stored almost limitlessly carbohydrates can only be stored in relatively finite amounts so if you okay. want to understand like calories we can store like the most i guess well-tuned athletes could store maybe 1300 calories calories worth of energy in the form of carbohydrate on the body let's look again at a fun a well-tuned athlete say a, a lean male athlete he might have around 60,000 calories worth of energy stored on him in the form of body fat so the efficient athlete or individual has the ability to tap into those 60,000 calories and the 1200 calories and they can switch oh. between the two. Oh wow the metabolically inefficient or inflexible athlete would really be left with only the ability to tap into those 1,200 calories worth of energy and not the 60,000 calories worth of energy stored there in the form of body fat. And this is relevant to athletes, especially endurance athletes that want to run longer, cycle longer, swim longer, surf for hours. It's relevant because you need those carbs in periods of high intensity because carbs is like the fast burning, you know, jump, push, pull. But the fats, they can help in the lower intensity stuff. And so if you've got the flexibility, the efficiency to go between the two, then you can go, I won't say all day, that would be an exaggeration, but you could, you can go for a lot longer, hours on end without wow. feeling... Yeah, without feeling the crashes that can come about as a result of a, a lack of efficiency. That's in the athlete space. Just day to day, though, if you're an individual who doesn't have the metabolic efficiency, your body's still using these two fuel sources or it's got the option of the two fuel sources, fat or carbohydrates. But if you're metabolically inflexible or inefficient, you'll still be in this real carbohydrate-burning 
mode, which means you'll have the peaks and troughs in energy levels, you know, that coincide with meal times and snack times. You might experience the hangries. So, you know, getting hungry equals getting angry. Um, you might experience mood imbalances um, that come about with, you know, not eating or eating. Um, you might have um, poor recovery from exercise. They're all signs of somebody who's got a lack of metabolic efficiency and cravings as well, I should say. So cravings for sweet foods after a meal, cravings for really carbohydrate-rich meals. They're signs of being a carbohydrate slash sugar burner and a sign that that individual has real trouble tapping into the fat that's stored on the body for fuel. That's um, me. <laughs> <laughs> You're describing that like, oh, my God, my metabolism, it's not efficient. I can't, I can't use the fat. Um, I can't use the fat. So yeah. that, that goes down to like, um, uh, you know, women, uh, not women, a lot of people that I know, I shouldn't generalise women or men because I know mm. there, there are a lot of the males in the same boat. They go, I'm doing all this exercise and I'm working out and I'm eating really lean but I can't seem to, you know, move my, my weight. That's exactly you know, it. I, the jeans are still tight or, you know, um, you know, I still can't button up that shirt. Um, exactly so that's that's exactly what's happening the, the, yeah. metabol the metabolism is insufficient absolutely and I'll paint a common scenario and then break it down a little but um, often in clinic I will have let's say a middle-aged woman she's maybe like I don't know late 40s 50s the kids are finally a little self-sufficient she's suddenly she's able to take care of herself again or do some things for herself again sick of um, not having lost weight or sick of having gained weight you know, since having children, decides, all right, I'll do something for myself. I'll start training for a marathon or a triathlon or something like that. I still work full time. I'll still make sure, I've, like, the kids have got their lunches to, stay, to take to school. Well, I'll start training for a triathlon. Then they come to me after six months or so and they're like, oh, I started training for this triathlon so I could lose weight and do something for myself and I've not lost a kilo, I've gained weight. <laughs> um, yes, I've heard that. Yeah, and it's because they're, not, they're still in the sympathetic state. They're still perpetuating that sugar-burning metabolism um, because they're exercising at an intensity that is too great. So they're exercising at an intensity that requires carbohydrate as the primary fuel source. Now, remember, carbohydrate is stored finitely. So if you finish that exercise session, you then go and eat more carbohydrates. And so you're only burning, you're only burning through this very small bucket of energy. You're not actually tapping into the body fat that's stored on the body. And then you've got the compounding issue of somebody that's not sleeping enough because they're burning the candle at both ends to get up and train and get the kids ready for school. And then it's stress because of work and the kids. And they think they're taking time out for themselves by training for said event. But in actual fact, they're perpetuating um, this already overworked um, nervous system. Yeah. So it's really hard to burn body fat when you're, training too much, training at too high levels of intensity, when there's excess stress, not enough sleep, it's really hard to burn body fat. Um, well, it's, it's stressful on the body, the impact mm. of all that. Like, you know, you're describing it. It's like not having enough sleep. And I know sleep is super important in recovery uh, after training. Um, and if you're already deprived in, in your sleep patterns and you're, and you're working perhaps and you're doing all those other things and you're pushing yourself to 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 run more or to exercise or it is it's almost a recipe for disaster you kind of you talking about it, I'm sitting there going no wonder you know <laughs> yeah. it makes a lot of sense yeah you know, yeah, yeah of course yeah. yeah and so uh the reason why it's really hard to burn the body fat is because of well a cascade of things but in particular one hormone called insulin so insulin is in in the right amounts it's it's a very protective very required hormone without it we would die but in large amounts it becomes prohibitive it gets in the way so essentially insulin is released in response to elevating blood sugar levels or blood glucose levels so when we eat carbohydrates or when we get stressed blood sugar levels rise and the body responds by releasing insulin to help the muscles take up sugar from the bloodstream and therefore maintain insulin, I mean, sorry, maintain blood glucose levels. So that's yeah. important. 
but excessive insulin so let's say uh, either because there's excess amounts of sugar slash carbohydrate being consumed or because there's a state of lack of insulin sensitivity taking place it'll cause excess insulin and insulin is a fat storage hormone so whilst insulin is present fat won't be burned carbohydrate will always be the primary fuel source so um what you have to do is moderate the insulin and to moderate the insulin you reduce the carbs the carbohydrates and that could be anything on the spectrum from processed carbohydrates like a bag of snakes to more whole food carbohydrates like a sweet potato or a potato all carbohydrate um so you've got to manage the carbohydrate and also manage the stress because stress will lead to elevating insulin as well wow which of course stress also leads to eating carbohydrates too because it's a comfort food isn't it yeah, and because of that cycle, so um, you're you've you've got you've got the stress hormones that are causing. Actually, the stress hormones cause um, glycogen to be released from the liver. So the liver's the, the liver's got like this backup store of sugar, so that if there's stress and we need to like fight or flee, there's some sugar there that can be you know mobilized and sent to the muscles to allow that fighting or running to take place. But if fighting or running doesn't take place, because it doesn't, like in this day and age, we're sitting in a car or we're behind our computers when we're stressed, yeah. um, the body will then release insulin to try and mop up the blood sugar that's been elevated as a result of the stress response. So that's wow. why stress will cause the insulin surge and rises. And then, of course, the insulin will switch off fat burning. So then you're back on this role, this, I guess, this cycle of craving sugar because your body's burning sugar, so you're craving more sugar. So you're craving more sugar. So even if, for example, you don't eat a lot of sugar, but you're highly stressed, does your insulin, your insulin still will go up? Unfortunately, yeah, in, some, in, in many cases, yeah. yeah. So, is, so how do we bring it down? So it's the lowering of the carbohydrates. So on one side, you've got this lowering of carbohydrates and that means trying to centre your meal times around lots of non-starchy vegetables. So, you know, spinach, lettuce, kale, tomato, mushrooms, fennel, um, and low sugar fruits also I'll put in that category. So berries and papaya and kiwi fruit. Quality proteins, so that could be from an animal like chicken or beef or it could be plant-based like tofu, tempeh and lentils. And then anti-inflammatory or quality fats. So, again, they could be animal-derived like some grass-fed butter or plant-derived, so things like avocado, nuts and seeds, quality oils or even coconut products like coconut milk and coconut cream. And obviously nutrition is quite relative, but those th things from those three categories should form the basis of the plate. Sorry, <laughs> I can choke on my own saliva. Um, <laughs> those three things should form the basis of the plate. And you fill up on those three things and then you make a call, do I need to add carbohydrates? And if you are going to add carbohydrate, make it at least whole food carbohydrates. So higher sugar fruits, um, high starch veggies like potato and sweet potato, or grains and pseudo-grains, so rice, quinoa, buckwheat, those sorts of things. Um, in the context of the athlete, so somebody who's, you know, running or doing HIIT workouts or CrossFit workouts, if they're still a thing, um, then, <laughs> then... I've never done one in my life. I don't even know what it is. I, I'm just scared. <laughs> I know. I walk past the gyms and I'm like, oh, I'll leave you guys there. Oh, uh, bless my brother. He can't. He's like, I, I, he goes, I, you know, I am just, I can't do the CrossFit. Like, you know, give me anything. I can't do the CrossFit. But I'm like, I don't even know what it is. I think we're probably, we get caught up in the label of it. I think it's probably quite doable, but you, yeah. it, it feels like an exclusive club that you've got to be invited to or something to be able to join. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but for the athletes, the carbohydrates are incredibly important, primarily post-exercise. So like the first three things are the, like the foundations of what we should be eating if we're looking to lower the carbohydrates, lower the carbohydrates. 
But certainly for athletes, those carbs need to be added at the very least post-exercise. So you've been for a run, you come home, you have your meal with your berries and your protein powder and your chia seeds and coconut yogurt, and then you also make sure that there is a banana in there, for example. Um, And then depending on the individual, like if there's somebody who doesn't have much of a fat loss goal but they're recognising, you know, perhaps that there are some cravings and, um, you know, peaks and troughs in energy levels depending on snack time and meal time, then they might not need to go super low carb on the plate. So they still might focus on those first three things, you know, veggies, proteins, fats, and they might add carbs to one or two meals of the day. So there's okay. this, sort of this spectrum of where people sit, but fundamentally it's about managing the, manage, managing the carbohydrates being had over the course of the day and the worse the case of metabolic health, um, the lower the amount of carbohydrates and then I guess the, the more minor cases of metabolic inefficiency or disease, um, they can have slightly more carbohydrates on the plate. So it's very individual, very individual to obviously uh, the person, uh, their lifestyle as well, yeah. as to what they, um, how much carbohydrate they, they can, they can, yeah. they can actually um, digest um, and use efficient, efficiently, yeah. uh, which is interesting because you're right. I mean, what might be suited to me? I know when I was younger, I could, uh, I was. I would say I'm a lot more efficient with my metabolism in terms of, you know, digesting carbohydrates and using up that energy and what have you. As I'm getting older, I find that I'm just not that great at it. Mm. Uh, But my lifestyle's changed too. So, you know, 20-odd years ago, I was, you know, single and, you know, work and kind of didn't have that many responsibilities. And now, you know, stress, yes. Yeah, I was stressing less to be the best. Now I'm stressing more more and I'm still coming last. (laughs) Well, the other side, like you asked, how do we reduce the insulin? So one side of that um, is to manage the carbohydrate. And then the other thing is to look at the lifestyle and the stress that's being produced and the training that's being done. So sometimes like it's a matter of saying, okay, well, can we shift your training schedule a little bit for a period of time so that it's predominantly lower intensity exercise? So you still run, but you run at a lower heart rate. Um, and maybe maybe instead of doing like intense weightlifting sessions, you go and do some yoga for a while to to keep up your strength and your mobility. So we can look at lifestyle factors as well. So training intensity, the amount of sleep you're getting, um, where the perceived sources of stress are and the threats are in your life and can we remove some or can we change the way you perceive them. Uh, That's the sort of stuff we do on the lifestyle uh, side to manage your insulin levels through managing your stress hormones essentially. That makes a lot of sense. It's mm. actually quite logical. We don't yeah. think about it when we're in that state of stress and, you know, thinking ahead all the time. But uh, listening to you, it's like, oh, my gosh, it sounds so easy and so logical. Why we? Why don't we just stop and just, like, Thank take a it. chill pill and not, you know, push our bodies so hard? And I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone else, you know. Um, it's like, oh, I want to run. I want to run more. And now I actually I used to run every day and now I've, like, taken it back a notch and run three to four times a week and yeah. you know mix it up a little bit with like because I actually can't re- I, I don't recover as well as I I used to, used to. Uh, you know I think there so, is a lot of that um harder faster and I want to do what I used to be able to do but we've got to appreciate that um life changes we change uh, and our goals and our priorities and all of that can change and we don't have to compare ourselves to the way we were when we were younger like I'm guilty of it as well I look at pictures of myself when I was 20 I'm like oh, why don't I look like that anymore I'm like well of course I don't look like that anymore now I'm 34 and life's different oh, wait, wait till you get to 45 <laughs> and do you know what when you're 55 you probably look back so let's be present and appreciate the yeah. way we do look. Um, and training changes as well. 
you just can't necessarily maintain what you did when you were 20, for example. And it's not giving up. It's not a matter of saying like, oh, I won't run anymore. It's just a matter of appreciating that times change, just like seasons change and you could buy avocados for $3 and then you have to buy them for $6 sometimes. Like it's just appreciating that things flux and change and you've got to be more, um, fluid with it and open to it and, and not be rigid. And again, coming back to like what's what's the present, what, what am I dealing with here and now, not what I used to, not what I might in the future. And yeah, and what's that urgency to push yourself so hard? You yeah, know, like it's proving? okay. What are you yeah. like? What are you trying to prove? Not so much trying to prove, but why are you putting that kind of pressure, if you like, on yourself to perform something that your body, you know, if you've been raising kids for the last fifteen years, you're possibly really tired, and your body just wants to rest. So why are you running a marathon? You know, um, all, all that all that stuff goes into consideration. But you know, um, you you spoke about insulin and and how it affects our body. So it does also affect other other facets like our hormones as well, and and the and appetite and inflammation and um, and obviously the calories and how we how we consume them and burn them. Because I know in your article you talk about nutrient dense food, which you touched on earlier, mm-hmm. and how that's so important. Can you explain to us, because I know there's a lot of people that still um, calorie count. I've yeah. got lots of girlfriends that are like, I can't, I'm on Weight Watchers, I'm calorie counting. I'm like, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> kind of seems a bit complicated, but okay. Um, but I, I really love the fact that you kind of, you break to you break your food down into into nutrient dense food. So explain the difference between what happens when you calorie count and what happens when you're actually looking at the food as a whole. As you explained it before, the good fats, the good greens, a bit of protein. If you were to probably calculate the calories of of a meal, it'd probably be more than what you would take. But it's actually much better for you. Perhaps the simplest way that I can put it, and. Um... I'm all for trying to make things simple, which is why I'm really glad, like you said, you read that article and it just broke things down and made them conceivable. And I think that's really important. Like that's what anybody who specialises in a field should do. So I'm glad to hear that you felt that about the, about the article. Um, but probably the simplest way to put it is that we can either count calories and like use that to try and reduce or increase calories based on what our goals are. Or we can use food to choose the calories that we burn. Okay, so yeah. we can choose amount of calories or we can choose the type of calories. Now, most people I meet, the type of calories they want to burn are fat calories. Of course. Yeah, like they want to burn <laughs> into, I don't even want to try and figure out the, t- the tens of thousands of calories worth of fat on my body, but you want to burn the fat calories, not just that finite store of carbohydrate calories. And so to do that, you need to eat food that's going to impact the hormone response to that meal or benefit the hormonal response to that meal. So insulin comes back into play. So you can have a low-calorie but high-carbohydrate meal that has a high-insulin response and then switches off fat-burning, or you can have a lower-carbohydrate but still a relatively, let's say, normal or higher-calorie meal but because you don't get the same insulin response, your body doesn't shut down fat burning. So you're still able to mobilize those fats that are stored on the body and um, allow that process to help you reduce the fats that are stored on the body if that's your, if that's your goal, which it, for most people who are calorie counting, their goal is to reduce body fat, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The simplest way that I can put it, that what we eat has a flow-on effect to what calories our body burns. Are they fat calories or are they carbohydrate calories? And just simply reducing the amount that you eat doesn't necessarily impact that. Yeah. Mm. What tends to happen if people are calorie counting is what do they do? They cut the they cut the fat because fat per gram has more calories than carbohydrates and protein. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. About double. So it take anyone who's just looking at maths would say all right well if i don't have fat in my meal i can have more food on my plate more carbs more protein on my plate um but less calories so cool <coughs> more is better so i want to have a bigger plate uh but not thinking about the fact that that meal will will switch off fat burning won't allow fat burning to happen so it's like it's it's like in the primitive mind, like yeah. 
in yeah, the yeah, narrow yeah. mind, the here and now, I want a bigger plate of food, um, as opposed to acknowledging the hormonal influence of food. So I have a smaller plate of food, more calories because I've got avocado and olive oil and chia seeds. I don't even know if they go together in a meal. But anyway, I've got those things yeah. on a plate. More calories but less carbohydrates. So the hormonal response to that meal is very different to the hormonal response to the the lower calorie meal of um, bread and banana and honey. And and it sounds like it's it's more filling too. I know when I have uh, a, a denser meal, for example, uh, you, you said avocado, and I love avocado. So if I have like avocado and eggs and you know some tomato or whatever, I I actually I eat I do eat less. And I feel fuller as opposed to having a massive bowl of salad where I'll eat it and my like, oh, I'm still hungry. Yeah. I'm like, go yeah, get a Mars bar. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's another part of it as well. So getting out yeah. of control and satiety. So, again, as a result of the hormones um, being managed by that, let's say, more calorie-dense but nutrient-dense meal, um, the satiety then means that you don't have to eat every couple of hours and, therefore, you can have pockets of fat burning during the day. And also it's it's um, quite mentally relieving as well when you're not constantly hungry and wanting to snack and then telling yourself off for snacking. So um, if you if you just yeah if you just think about like I need to nourish my body, I need to use this meal to give it what it needs to achieve balance. Um, I guess that's what like nutrient density versus calorie counting is changing your mindset around how you perceive uh the food and the fuel that you take into your body you mm. know food fuel yeah 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 i um i try and break it down sometimes for people by highlighting that we have trillions of cells in our body right like we are mm. just a cluster of cells and the only way that those cells can do everything that they need to do all of these you know, tiny chemical reactions that are taking place to allow neurotransmitters to, to fire and function and hormones to be re- produced, those cells need to get access to nutrients and fuel. And the only way they do that, aside from some of the gut, gut bacteria in our gut making nutrients, which is a whole other convo, only way those cells get those nutrients is by what we choose to put into our mouth, um, which is... Aside from the conversation, aside from like me describing, you know, choosing the calories that we burn rather than just reducing the calories that we eat, um, this conversation of nutrient density also applies to literally getting enough nutrients in so we have all of the minute little, um, I guess, additions that contribute to the wheels continuing to turn within the cells within our body, right? And if you go on a low calorie protocol, you cut the calories, then you also cut the nutrients. And then guess what? Like you haven't got the nutrients that your thyroid needs to work, which is the master regulator of our metabolism. Yeah. So many yeah. other examples that I could use, but so yeah, so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So it's this And you don't you don't think about that. You don't think that your body's made up of these trillions of cells that need all these micro, you know, nutrients to help you actually just leave. I think it's 100% important um, to take that into consideration, all the other um, little cells and, you know, microorganisms that we need to keep us going and keep us moving and functioning on a mental and healthy level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I I saw someone once um, quote, like, the way you eat impacts the way you think and feel. Yeah. For a lot of people, that would be very hard to conceptualize. But if you actually break it down, it's 100% true. So the way you eat influences what hormones can be produced, what neurotransmitters can be reduced, which are basically our brain chemicals. So think things like serotonin and dopamine. Uh, and so the way you eat quite literally impacts the way you think and feel. And if we can put all of that together, it means that food is so much more than just what pair of jeans you can fit into or what size jeans you can fit into. And we need to grasp that because we can't keep going down this this path of deprivation to look a certain way in a pair of jeans. Like we have to appreciate that food is so much more for our bodies. Uh, and 
without it, without the right stuff in there, then yeah, we don't think and feel good, <laughs> let alone well, look in a way. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's a big movement now. I think there's a whole big movement of body image and what's healthy and what's unhealthy. Um, but I still think we've got a little bit to go. I think there's so many, there's so many, I think things, uh, uh, so many aspects of, of dieting and nutrition out there that aren't realistic and, and conducive to our well-being, I believe. So yeah. it's great to kind of look at it from your perspective and look at our body as a whole and how it works and how it functions on an optimal level and eating foods that are that are going to sustain us whatever stage of life we're in um, is probably the, 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 the most important step, um, I think, anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. But um, you're plant-based nutritionist though too so one of the questions one of the questions i want to ask you i'm not, I'm not plant-based um not because i'm a huge meat eater or you know animal uh, product consumer mm. um i love goat's cheese I just, <laughs> um that's about you know and i might have and I, and I do like a bit of fish but it's interesting because a lot of the proteins and the nutrient-dense type of foods are found in, in animal products like your butter and your, um, and your meats and all that sort of stuff. So as a, as a, as a plant-based nutritionist, what do you recommend? My sister's a vegan. Yeah. So what, what do you recommend um, uh, to, to people that are wanting to increase their fats, for example, because we need them and they're important, yeah. um, and their proteins. Um, what are some? What are some of your? You know, these are Protein. a must in your diet. In your diet, if you're, you know, plant based plant or based. vegan. Mm. Yeah. So I'm predominantly plant based. I uh, probably have eggs in my diet once a week, once a fortnight, but everything else in my diet is plant derived, um, which is what works for me. And I've been through ebbs and flows over the last ten years. Um, primarily just wanting to make sure that my health was never compromised as a, as a result of my decision to be plant-based and now I'm at a point where I can predominantly be plant-based because of my health. And so I think it is a really personal decision for people but it's also a completely viable option for people as well. And so you think about that, I guess, that checklist of getting lots of non-starchy vegetables and low-sugar fruits at mealtimes, getting good quality proteins at mealtimes, getting good quality fats and carbohydrates being sort of the, 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 the last decision that you make about whether they're required at the plate. The biggest change there will be with regards to the proteins and the fats on a plant-based diet. But you can still get those without any worry. So protein is 100% protein requirements are 100% achievable through consuming things like um, tofu and tempeh, always organic and non-genetically modified. Through consuming different um, legumes and lentils, nuts and seeds. So hemp seeds are a great source of protein without excess carbohydrate. And then even good quality protein powders, so hemp seed powder, pea protein powder can be used strategically as well to, to get that overall protein intake goal achieved. And then your quality fats, of course, you wouldn't be using the, you know, the animal fats and butters, but you can definitely have an abundance of avocados and cold-pressed oils and nuts and seeds and coconut milks and creams and yogurts and things like that. So from a macronutrient point of view, there's almost little to no like detailed consideration when it comes to a plant-based diet. You just need to make sure that you're like pay paying attention to that mealtime checklist and not just um, replacing your animal proteins for extra pasta or extra rice or having toast or having cereal because that will land you in big trouble. Well, that goes back to carbohydrate. Yeah, exactly, exactly, processed yeah. foods. Um, yeah. So from a macronutrient pro profile or um, point of view, if your plant-based diet is largely whole foods, then you can still get that checklist and you're A-OK. -okay. There are some micronutrient considerations um, and so it's probably about seven micronutrients that the American Dietetic Association has flagged as being of the highest consideration for those on a plant-based diet, which is always where I start. So looking at things like EPA, DHA, which are um, omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin D, calcium, iodine, iron, 
B12 and zinc. So they okay. would be the, the highest, the top considerations. Of those, however, it's only a couple that actually might need supplementation. The others would need management and assessment and potentially supplementation based on the stage of life the individual was in. But those that that which requires supplementation without a doubt is vitamin B12 if, if on a purely plant-based diet. You can't get reliable bioavailable sources of B12 from plant foods. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the other one that I sometimes recommend um, is EPA DHA, which is an omega which is omega three fats, but we only find EPA DHA in um, animals or in algae derived um, okay. fats. So. Sometimes I recommend an EPA, DHA. And then those other nutrients are very much life, life, um, life stage and individual dependent. Okay. But, uh, yeah, so for plant-based eaters, it's making sure that the animal foods aren't being replaced for cereals and grains and potatoes and starches and pasta. Uh, and then once you've got that down pat, it's looking at the micronutrients and um, making sure that you're, you're aware of your life stage requirements, staying in touch with your nutrient profile, you know, either through bloods or through working with a nutritionist to help them break down where your blind spots might be, and then having a really nice and diverse diet so you are getting all of those micronutrients that I just mentioned where you need to. Yeah. And and do you have specific? Obviously, I know this is um, individual to everyone. Um, amounts, for example, you know, you might uh, a tablespoon of good olive oil, or is there like a rough kind of estimate that, as as a gen, generally speaking, yeah, um, that we should have, regardless of how physically active we we are or we're not, that we should try and get in, especially with the fats, because I find it's a bit confusing. Sometimes I hear people say, "Oh, you know what." you know, just a sprinkle of olive oil is enough. And then others say, oh, no, you know, a tablespoon to two tablespoons of good fats or, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or have 100 grams of protein um, or, you know, you know, if you're eating tofu, you can have 250 grams of tofu and all that sort of stuff. Is there like a, a kind of a base for kind of general? Yeah, good everyone? question. Definitely good question. So um, think meal times. it's two cups of non-starchy vegetables. Yeah, two fistfuls if that's easier to visualize. Yeah, yeah. Protein, um, it would be about 120 grams of either like animal protein or tofu and tempeh, or <laughs> or um, up to 150 grams for a male. Uh, if we're still talk looking at animal proteins, eggs, it would be between two and three eggs um, for a serving of protein. Uh, if it's legumes and lentils, then we're looking at up to half a cup for a full serving of protein. But I usually recommend a combination of like a half cup of legumes with a couple of tablespoons of seeds to get a serving of protein just because it's lower carbohydrate then. Yeah. And then fats. And you're right, there's such discrepancy in what people would consider to be a serving of fat. So a serving of fat is the equivalent of half an avocado two tablespoons of oils, two tablespoons of nut seeds or their butters or about 100 mils of coconut yogurt cream or a dairy milk yogurt. Okay. Um, there your fat serves and anywhere, like for a female, I would usually recommend between one and two serves of fats per meal. This is where we might get a little more detailed in depending on the time of day and the amount of exercise and the personal goals. And for a male, it's usually two serves of fat per main meal. Okay. So that's good. That it kind of clarifies that because, like I said, there's so many different variants of how much, how little. I know in I work in an office full of uh, women, and um, and you know some of some of the girls are on specific you know diets. Whatever. It's like, oh no, I could only have this much chicken. I'm like, why? Why can't you only have that much? Because that's what my dietitian said. I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay, just that much. What, so what happens if I have that much? Or do I, can I have more than that? Yeah, so it's actually yeah. interesting to know that there is, there is a kind of little formula that, you know, that, is, that works for everyone. If you, you know, if you have, that's good. There that's is. good. But 
I guess that's why I love being a nutritionist and working one-on-one as well because there is so much um, conflict and I think the reason there's conflict like within media and social media and stuff like that is because nutrition is relative. So there's going to be conflict if you've got person A talking about what worked for them and then you've got person B talking about what worked for them and then they're both in conflict about what the solution is. Um, either work with somebody who can help you figure out the solution for you or listen to your body and help your body tell you what the solution is for you rather than becoming so clouded by what's out there. Unfortunately, um, because of the amount of conflict out there, we're like the only mammal that doesn't intuitively know what to eat anymore. (laughs) We're distracted. We're We're so distracted. But my dog, like I just got a puppy and it doesn't need to be told. I don't know. Probably a puppy is not the right example because they're not in control of what they eat. But like a lion, for example, like they don't have like dietitians in the whatever the cluster of lions is called. What are they called? Um, oh. Anyway, they know what to eat. They know what to eat. And we would too if we listened and weren't listened to ourselves and weren't so clouded by all of the different variables that other people are sharing about their own experiences if that makes sense and and you know what too as humans we love to compare and you know and we'll go oh Ali's done this new detox so and she looks amazing I'm gonna do it and so then we do then you know you know I, you do the detox and all of a sudden you don't feel that great you're like this sucks I feel like shit I'm tired I'm exhausted well how come it works for her it doesn't work for me it's yeah it's that that human nature to compare and try anyway as well yeah. which is again as you said we lose that intuition of 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 what works for you yeah. I think as you get older I find as I'm getting older I am a little bit more in tune with my body like, I'm not a big meat eater but there will be once or twice a month where I'll be like, yeah, I could do a steak right now. And I will have, have it, you know, and it, I don't have a big portion of steak. I'll have a tiny, just enough to kind of satisfy whatever it is my body needs. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I don't like steak, if I'm honest about it. I actually don't like it at all. I hate the taste of it. I hate the feeling of it in my mouth. But I will eat it because my body's craving it. Yeah. And it only happens, it tells me, and, it only, and even my kids and my husband are like, oh, my God, I can't believe eating steak. I'm like, oh, no, I can't believe it, but I, I need it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's exactly that. Yeah. I actually, I know my body needs it, and I feel good yeah. after having yeah. it. Yeah, uh, which brings me to my next next point. Um, running. I know you're a runner. How long have you been running for? Probably all your life. Since I was yeah seventeen, I started running. My boyfriend broke up with me when I was seventeen, and I was like, I'll show him. I'll run a half marathon, <laughs> and that's when I started running. <laughs> <laughs> and, have been, and, and have been running ever since. Yeah, with um ups and downs and injuries over the last three years, which has been a real um, a real bummer. But, yeah, I was doing marathons until that point and really loving it and getting quite good at it, uh, in my opinion. And, yeah. yeah, so for the last three years, again, I can't compare myself to three years ago because my body's different. I can't run the same amounts and I just have to be happy with what I can do right now. Uh, and yeah. hope that in the future I can increase again. But, yeah, I run, similar to you, I try and run probably four days a week and we'll, I don't know, anywhere between like 35 and 45 kilometres a week is sort of the goal. Yeah, 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 which is it's kind of, it's, it's sensible too, especially if, like, you know, we were discussing earlier, life changes, you know, um, and, and the demands on, on on ourselves from a mental, emotional, physical level at different, uh, different stages. But, um as a runner, I guess, um, what are some of the the most important things? And and I, I guess again, I'm going to generalise here because I don't I don't think you need to just be a runner. Anyone that exerts a, a, a cardio uh, regularly uh, as as a form of exercise during the week, what are some of the main things they need to introduce into their diet, in, um, not only to fuel but also to recover afterwards? So recovery is number one, right? So recover better train better so yeah number one is what you eat after training and um making sure that you have a meal that is that nutrient dense plate so vegetables or low sugar fruits like berries and they're really important for their antioxidant capacity so when we exercise exercise we're contributing to essentially there's some exercise induced inflammation so we need lots of antioxidants in the diet to help 
mop up that exercise-induced inflammation. And the higher intensity of the exercise, the more exercise-induced inflammation there will be. So the higher the nutrient requirements of the diet. Um, So I would always say lots of low-sugar fruits or non-starchy vegetables. Like that's incredibly important. Um, The protein is obviously important for muscle recovery, but not in the high amounts that a lot of people might think. So a serving per meal. And for the athlete that's training at high intensity, carbohydrates is part of that recovery strategy as well. So whole food carbs like banana or sweet potato or quinoa as part of that post-training recovery meal requirement. Um, But training intensity is also relevant, and I might be going down a bit of a rabbit hole here, but I just want people to be clear because we talked about like sugar burning and fat burning earlier in the chat. Your training intensity will determine what the predominant fuel source is in that training session. So if you're going out and doing low-intensity aerobic activity, like a sustained jog for 50 minutes or um, a, a bike ride for 75 minutes, it's likely that fat burning will be the fat will be the predominant fuel source in that session. So your post-session recovery requirements are primarily around like the antioxidant-rich veggies and berries and good quality proteins and fats to keep you going versus if you're doing a higher intensity exercise session like HIIT or CrossFit or you're doing an interval run or you're doing a very long run like you've set the sights on a 90-minute run, then you also need the carbohydrates there to help replenish the carbs that you're burning in that session. So that's carbs after after after, your exercise? Not before, after. How Think, long after? Is there, a, is there like a time? Yeah, within like, the 90 minutes, ideally after. Okay. Yeah. So the way that I always like to remember and describe it is that, remember your carbohydrate stores are finite. So it's like you're draining a sink during the training session. You're draining that carbohydrate sink during the high-intensity training session. And so you want to refill that sink after the session so you can go back and do your next training session with a full sink. Okay. You go back and try and do the next training session with an empty sink, that's when you'll have heavy legs and feel drained and feel lethargic. Ah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So for the athlete, it's an antioxidant-rich diet. It's adequate carbohydrates to support training recovery. And then what I also haven't mentioned is hydration. Hydration, hydration, like at minimum 500 ml of water for every hour that you're training and an additional two litres as a standard daily intake of water. Being researched, I forget what year it was, but there was a study done at Lancaster University and they did driving simulations. So they compared drivers over the legal limit for alcohol with drivers that were dehydrated guess who failed the simulation (laughs) oh my god the dehydrated drivers no way yeah yeah, no way yeah because mental acuity they weren't as switched on they they weren't as like all the things you said you feel more switched on you feel more clear in the mind um that all happens or that all starts to dwindle when you're dehydrated and in actual fact, the body's not very good at giving you cues of dehydration, so it might it might like give you the cue of going to get a snack when in actual fact you probably need a water first, which is why I like mm. those age-old fat loss tips is like, if you're hungry, go and get a glass of water. <laughs> Actually, That's what I say to my kids. I'm hungry. Go get a glass of water. Stop telling me to drink water, <laughs> mum. Feed me. <laughs> it's, actually not a bad, it's actually not a bad bit of advice to give. I'm going to say that to them. I've got, I've got, I've got on record. <laughs> yes, exactly. Literally, it's recorded. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's, it is. It, it does go under, um, under the radar a little bit because we do. Yeah, we just, we're just talking about all the things that we need, but water's a big one. Water's a big one. So you've done your exercise. You're within that 90 minutes thing. You've had two glasses of water post workout, um, and now you're like, okay, I generally do a smoothie. Right, and I throw a banana in there, coconut water, a few frozen berries, maybe some walnuts, um, a bit of cinnamon, and you know I might put a scoop of um, coconut yogurt. Right, I don't put any protein. I'm not a fan of protein, um, and and then I'll have that. Oh, chia seeds. I'll put chia seeds in them. That's another one I do because I don't have protein, and I prefer the chia seeds anyway. And I kind of find like that kind. Of, I feel 
I feel okay. Yeah. You know, and I'll, I'll be okay until lunchtime, for example. So is something like that or do I, should I add something extra or, you know, because I know a lot of people like me that are busy will do their workout and they'll, they'll, you see them shaking their, sh- their protein shakes and they're drinking and running out the door. So, mm-hmm. you know, is there something we need to add in that shake or is, is shake not a good idea after? post-workout should we actually be sitting down and having bacon and eggs or or you know a a a plate full of veggies and and stuff no I'm all for smoothies it's just what's in that smoothie right like you can have a smoothie or you can have a smoothie like there's differences between the way that they're built and what's in there so um in your situation I would say okay tick so that gets you through to lunchtime which is the sign of a good smoothie but you said you're not recovering that well from training right now and then I would also say what are your cravings like later in the day and what are your energy levels like later in the day because if there's cravings or there's flux in energy then I'd come back to that post-training smoothie and start to break it down um so if you're not recovering well and you have got let's say maybe not you but if you've got flux in your energy levels later in the day or cravings later in the day then the smoothie does need protein. So find one that you can learn to like, whether it's a hemp seed powder, which it's not flavoured, it's probably more of an earthy taste, or maybe it's like a a pea protein powder that's sweetened naturally with stevia. Uh, Bear Blends would be like my most recommended brand. And then probably more fats in there as well to really give you good blood sugar control for the rest of the day. So two servings of fat, which might be uh, a, half, a half a cup of coconut yogurt, a tablespoon of chia seeds and like a slither of avocado or a tablespoon of tahini, which is sesame seed paste. Uh, and that would be your two serves of fat to have alongside um, your carbs in the banana and probably get some greens in there. I don't know if you said greens, but I would always. I do I do sometimes put greens. I don't always, but I do sometimes. I've always got like frozen spinach or frozen celery or yeah, frozen perfect. kale in the fridge. So I'll throw, I'll throw a handful perfect. of that in there. But um, so that, so just add, just tweak it. Tweak it, tweak it. Yeah. And like a smoothie can be perfect. So can an egg breakfast. Like you can make a, a quick pan of scrambled eggs with, um, you know, a few handfuls of sautéed veggies and then you serve that with half an avocado and a tablespoon of olive oil and 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 if you wanted you some go. carbs or needed some carbs, yeah, you could have some leftover quinoa from the night before with it or you could have a banana on the side or something. So uh, I guess it's all about finding what works for your lifestyle and a smoothie, like it works for you, it works for me. Like I can take my yeah. smoothie anywhere or I can have it pre-made. It's just very flexible. So yeah. Looking at like what are your nutrient requirements and then what are the lifestyle requirements and how can we help the two align? So yeah, yeah, they both get looked after. It's it's super important. I think um, I, I think putting stopping and putting nutrition as number one um, in terms of your um, your day to day things to do is so important right now. And I guess um, especially if we are busy, you know, and it's just kind of having that simple checklist, even if it's in your mind, going, okay, I'm going to have a big workout today and I might add an extra scoop of protein or I might, you know, do that or, you know, okay, have I got enough fats because I know that's what. But this is why people come and see you because you can kind of cater to what their individual needs are and their lifestyle, you know, and it's mm-hmm. great to be able to kind of look at it as an overview of, of why nutrition is important, why nutrition nutritionally dense food is so important and why we need to listen to our bodies a little more and stress less to be the best. Loved chatting to you today about um, nutrition, all things nutrition, holistic nutrition um, and the metabolism. And um, your Instagram page is fantastic because it's chock full of great advice in there as well. So if people want to see you and and make an appointment with you, where do they go? I know you have have your website, but do you want to let us know uh, where they'd go and what you're offering and your Instagram and socials if they want to connect with you on them and send you a DM. It's been great talking to you, so thank you for having me. And I would love for anybody that's resonated with this conversation or wants to learn more to either go to Instagram and stalk me. Um, <laughs> at So that's nutritionally or it's like nutrition with Ellie, E-L-L-Y. Or my website is nutritionally.com, which is really a hub of plant-based recipes and articles related to metabolic health and plant-based nutrition. 
And then if people are interested in working with me, then they can book in either for a consult or just get started with a 15-minute complimentary consult, which is an opportunity for uh, me to hear about um, an individual's goals and for and for us to talk about what would the next steps look like if we do start working together. And it's just a good opportunity to figure out, like, okay, are we are we compatible, you know, are we going to be good together? Uh, and also do we need to do any testing before we start working together? Um, that's also a, like a helpful first step, yeah. When you say testing, what kind of testing, like allergy testing, um, metabolism, thyroid testing, um, what sort of testing? So you usually start with blood tests. So blood tests would usually be looking at like nutrient status or so things like iron levels, B12, zinc, thyroid status and function. Um, and depending on the individual, the blood test might then turn into uh, gut microbiome and gut health testing. That's something I do routinely. So maybe like one in every three of my clients will be doing gut health testing. And then sometimes hormone profiling, so looking at the cortisol profile, looking at reproductive hormone profile. And then sometimes doing food intolerance, but most frequently testing would be blood testing stool sampling for gut microbiome assessment and then hormone profiling. Wow, girlfriend, you're going deep. You don't muck around. <laughs> we go deep. We go deep. You, you don't muck around. Well, we're talking okay. about tailored nutrition, yeah. Okay, maybe I'll document my my sessions, okay. <laughs> no, that's good. Well, we'll have all your deets on the, on the website um, and on the podcast as well um, for people to get in touch with you and have you all linked in so they can and have a chat to you but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you so much um and it's such an insightful chat on all things um that i guess i hope everyone wanted to hear but um and understand a, a little bit more in depth on how our body works and how we can um have it run more efficiently more efficiently with the foods that we eat on a regular basis but i am definitely going to come and see you so um yeah thank you thanks maria thank you for having me Hey everyone, hope you enjoyed episode 12 with holistic nutritionist Ali. If you want more information on Ali or you want to shoot her an email, jump on her website, nutritionally.com or follow her on Instagram at nutritionally. Thanks for listening. Ciao for now.